Hello again and welcome to the Grizz Weekly Grind. Proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica, TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies and your host for the podcast. This is episode 10 and the Grizzlies wrapped up their three-game road trip after being parked for five games as we record this. The last two games of that road trip, well, I think it would be fair to say it was a bit of a mixed bag. And we'll recount those two games, one against San Antonio and one against Indiana. And that was the week that was. After that, I've got some PD points. And then in NBA story time, we are going to tell you the story of how and why the referees show up on time. It is one of the most frequently asked questions I get. Where does Brevin come up with? And they showed up on time when we talk about the referees at the top of the telecast. I will answer that question for you. I've answered it in other forms, but uh, I've never answered it on the podcast, so I will do that. And uh, that will be our NBA story time. Now, we'll wrap up the show with another friend of the program, actually an, an old friend of the program, because you might remember a while back, we had welcomed TNT play-by-play man Brian Anderson as our friend of the program. And today we've got part two of that conversation. Now, if you're curious, part one included his thoughts on the Memphis Grizzlies uh, as B.A. and Grant Hill had called the MLK Day game against the Phoenix Suns. If you want to reference part one of our conversation, that actually is in episode eight of the podcast. So uh, that's how we'll wrap up the show with Brian Anderson, friend of the program. But first... Let's lead everything off with That Was the Week That Was. I think you all remember that the Grizzlies had uh, beaten San Antonio soundly in the first game out of the five-game suspension break with the solid 129-112 to 112 win over the Spurs in San Antonio. And, you know, at that point, the, the predominant question was, will the Grizzlies be rested or will they be rusty? Well, clearly they were rested and they weren't very rusty because they did such a great job with the Spurs. And, you know, then the question is, okay, you've got a day off. Were you running on adrenaline? Can you possibly duplicate this effort against a good San Antonio team that is uh, middle of the pack young in terms of the NBA? But as far as Greg Popovich is concerned, it's the youngest team he's ever had. Uh, it is a young athletic team with guys like DeJounte Murray, Keldon Johnson, uh, a lot of young players, Derek White coming back off a toe injury. So the question was, okay, so you beat them soundly once. Can you possibly do it again? I don't think anybody, except maybe the most optimistic Grizzlies fan, could have anticipated what happened on February the 1st when the Grizzlies played the second game of that two-game set against San Antonio, and they end up winning 133-102. to Ten guys played. Jonas Valanciunas out health and safety protocols. Grayson Allen also out health and safety protocols. So the Grizzlies only had ten available bodies. Nine of them scored in double figures. The only guy who didn't score in double figures was John Conchar, but he still went for five and five and was a plus 11 in 20 minutes of play. I mean, the, the thoroughness with which Memphis beat San Antonio was remarkable. Grizzlies shot 56% for a second consecutive game, and they made 15 threes, and they did it on 30 attempts. I mean, they shot an even 50% from three, 15 of 30 from beyond the arc. Uh, Grizzlies came into the uh, two-game set with San Antonio as one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league. But whatever it is about San Antonio and the Riverwalk, Grizzlies discovered their three-point shooting eyes and uh, just shot lights out. The other thing, too, that was impressive about this, when you when you walk into San Antonio, you understand that Historically, San Antonio has been a very ball-secure team. They do not turn it over very much. 
And before the Grizzlies played the first game against San Antonio, Spurs were averaging fewer than 11 turnovers a game. If they were to hold that turnover average, 10.8 was the exact number. If they were to hold that average for the entire season, it would be the lowest turnover average in NBA history. San Antonio just doesn't make a whole lot of mistakes. And the Grizzlies have earned their bread by turning other teams over. So the question is, you've got the good forced turnover team against the team that doesn't give it up very often. So what happens? Well, on February 1st, on Monday night, Grizzlies turn San Antonio over 15 times. It's not a huge number. It's a good number, uh, defensively speaking. But the Grizzlies were supremely opportunistic. They scored 30 points off those 15 turnovers. Because the other thing San Antonio does is when they do turn it over, they typically don't give up points. Well, they did against the Grizzlies. 30 points off of 15 San Antonio turnovers. Afterwards, Greg Popovich, very magnanimous in defeat, uh, got in front of the assembled media at AT&T Center, said they kicked our butts, they played harder, they were more physical, they sliced us and diced us, and after probably about 60, 70 seconds of praising the Grizzlies, he turned on his heel and walked away and did not take any questions from anybody. And this was a San Antonio team that had been playing pretty well. They had just beaten Denver. They had had a, a tremendous offensive explosion against the Boston Celtics, and the Grizzlies were able to hold them to 102 points in that second game. So the Grizzlies split the two games with San Antonio in San Antonio, and for the first time now, the Grizzlies have won three straight games at AT&T Center. Never had been done before. Grizzlies do that. And then, of course, the Grizzlies get off to the 6-1 the road start, uh, which that had never happened before. So, you know, Grizzlies felt pretty good. But they were going into San Antonio. I beg your pardon. They were going into uh, Indiana after San Antonio. And Indiana had... They were a little salty because they had played on Sunday against Philadelphia. They had a 20-point lead with about 15 minutes left, I think, and they just totally fell apart in the fourth quarter, and they lose at home to Philadelphia. Look, Grizzlies almost never win in Indiana, and for whatever reason. I mean, probably because Indiana, over the last 30-plus years, always has a winning record at home. Um, but for whatever reason, Grizzlies never play there very well. Uh, again, no Valanchunas, no Grayson Allen. Um, you know, Indiana hits three triples right out of the chute, and they never really look back in this ball game, and they go on to win it 134 to 116. So the tables were really turned. As well as the Grizzlies played against San Antonio on Monday, on Tuesday, Indiana played that well against the Grizzlies. I mean, Indiana shot 60%, 55% from three. I mean, they scored 134 points on 82 shots, despite the fact they turned it over 18 times. Incredible. And the Grizzlies still got 29 points off those turnovers. And the Grizzlies actually, you know, they, they were never really in this game. The, the game was double digits most of the way. Pacers led at one point by as many as 28. Pacers go wire to wire to go to 12-9. and nine. Grizzlies, after splitting the last two games, the second one at San Antonio with a win and then a loss in Indiana, Grizzlies are now 9-7 and seven as they head into the weekend. DeMontis Sabonis tied his career high with 32 points. Grizzlies have a Thursday night meeting with the Houston Rockets, and then on Saturday, uh, then that game will be at home. Then on Saturday night, they will be in New Orleans to take on the New Orleans Pelicans. And so that was the week that was for the Memphis Grizzlies. And now let's get to some PD points 
And, uh, you know, I just talked about the Indiana game and things obviously did not go well for the Grizzlies. And a lot of guys did not play up to their normal expected capabilities. Um, You know, part of that might have been third game, four nights, had five games uh, postponed. And so was the conditioning not all there. I mean, you could you could make a lot of excuses or rationalizations for why Indiana won in a blowout 134 to 116. Bottom line is, Indiana's really good. They played about as well as they could possibly play, and the Grizzlies did not play up to their standard. Um, John Morant had a very un-John Morant-like game. Ten points, five assists, four turnovers, just two of ten from the floor. Did make six of six from the free-throw line. Afterwards, he was the guy saying, look, it's on me. I was a no-show tonight. I have to be better. I have to bring it every single night. Um... Like I said, a lot of guys did not play up to their capabilities. Ja was one of them. Uh, you know, Ja took it to heart and I thought did a great job as a leader saying, look, this is on me. Um, I was a no-show. I think he's probably a little too harsh on himself. He was, he was hardly a no-show, but uh, Indiana did a really good job defending him. And uh, I like the fact that Ja took responsibility for it. Uh, even though, uh, even though certainly uh, Indiana had a lot to do with the Grizzlies' struggles in the ballgame. I mean, Grizzlies still shot 45% from the floor and made 23 of 24 from the free throw line. Uh, you know, it's not that they played horribly. It's just that Indiana played about as well as they, as they could. Um, PD point number two, the NBA starting to see improved COVID numbers. Uh, as we record this, the release just came out from the NBA that there are no new positive cases in the NBA, which is really, really good news because we had gone through that spate of postponements. Uh, Grizzlies lost a total of six games, the one against Minnesota, and then five straight games as they tightened the protocols up a little bit, and uh, it was hard for guys to really get any work in. It was uh, back to uh, you know the the earlier COVID days. One one player, one coach. That was all that you could do. You could, couldn't really be doing five on five. Um, and Washington also was parked for a substantial amount of time, but it's good to see that the numbers are back to zero. So zero new COVID cases in the NBA. And uh, whether it is the new protocols or guys are just adhering to the protocols a little bit more stringently than they had in the past, whatever it is, it's good news. Uh, in a previous edition of the podcast, I just don't think that having an all-star game is a really good idea. I know that they're voting. I know that they're going to name all-star teams, but I'm not sure that we need to bring guys to Atlanta uh, in the middle of a pandemic. I, I just, I, I still, I still don't get that. I really don't. Um, final PD's point. This is kind of interesting. And, you know, sometimes when you research and you prepare for a game, you never know what you're going to find. And one of the things I find out, found out uh, courtesy of Stat Factor LLC, who does some research for me and for Brevin Knight, uh, all paint shots are not created equal. Uh, for a number of years, you would typically look at or you would think that you would look at the top paint scoring team in the league and figure that they were going to the free throw line an awful lot because they were attacking the basket. Well, the Grizzlies are near the their last in the league in, in free throws attempted per game. Uh, and so, well, wait a second. They're number one in scoring in the paint. Why are they not getting to the free throw line? Well, you, you break down the research, and all paint shots are not created equal. And 
there's a there was a, a sharp contrast between Indiana and the Grizzlies. Indiana is one of the better paint scoring teams in the league, but what they do is that their shots in the paint typically come within the defensive restricted area, that little half circle right around the basket. Uh, a lot more physical contact there. Grizzlies get a lot of paint points, but how do the Grizzlies get paint points? They're one of the big biggest floater teams in the league, and so you'll have a guy drive, elevate maybe from the foul line, short of the dotted line at the bottom of the free throw circle. Well, that's still a paint point, but by and large, there isn't nearly as much physicality at that part of the paint. And so all paint shots are not created equal. Having said that, it'd be nice to see the Grizzlies get a little bit more uh, run to get to the free throw line. They did a better job against San Antonio. I think that they had something like eight and ones in the two games in San Antonio. So hopefully that is a trend that will continue for the Grizzlies. But I thought it was kind of interesting that all paint shots are not created equal because uh, you can be 14 feet away just inside the foul line. It's points in the paint. You can dunk it, and that's points in the paint. So certainly the uh, points in the paint not created equal. And those are the PD points for Episode 10 of the Grizz Weekly Grind. And uh, time now for a little NBA story time. One of the questions that I get most often is, where did Brevin Knight come up with, and they showed up on time when we introduced the referees at the start of the game? For those of you who have not watched games on Fox Sports Southeast, what I will always say at the start of a telecast, I'll say, Brevin, as you all know, we have three officials. And he chimes in, and they showed up on time. And then I said they've been assigned by the NBA, and then I named their names and playoff experience and and, and things like that. So how did this all happen? Well, when I was in Portland as their television voice for four years, Mark Mason was the public address announcer, and he would say at the start of the game, the three officials as assigned by the NBA are dot, dot, dot. And I thought that sounded pretty cool. And I, I thought maybe it was what the league wanted us to say in terms of introducing uh, the referees. Uh, And so I just came up with the, uh, you know, we have three officials. They have been assigned by the NBA. And and one day I'm doing this, and I just, like, pause for a breath. And Brevin decides to just throw in there, and they showed up on time. There, There's no rhyme or reason for that. He simply did it to have something to say. Um, the only, We did have Derek Richardson just flat out not show up for a game uh, in Brooklyn earlier this year, and we never got an explanation as to why exactly that happened. But uh, by and large, yes, the referees do show up on time, uh, despite the fact that right now scheduling referees is very, very difficult in, in this COVID environment and commercial air travel. But uh, so that, that that's how, and they showed up on time, ended up in our pregame mention of the referees. So there you go. That's today's NBA story time. Hope you uh, hope you enjoyed that. We'll try to clear up some other mysteries. If you have any questions uh, for me that you want to send, uh, my DMs are open. At Pete Pranica is the Twitter handle. So if you've got questions, uh, DM me your questions, and uh, we'll answer them. And maybe it'll be another edition of NBA story time. Now for the final segment of the program, it's our friend of the program. Brian Anderson has been calling NBA games on Turner Sports since 2012. You can also hear him on Turner's coverage of the Major League Baseball playoffs, golf coverage on multiple outlets, and college basketball for the NCAA tournament. He's also the voice of the Milwaukee Brewers. In today's installment, he tells a great story about the Brewers' legendary radio announcer, Bob Euchre. But first of all, he tells us what it is like calling games for TNT literally from his basement. And now Turner Sports has invested heavily because as you do this podcast with me and as you are doing games uh, from your storage area that has been outfitted by Turner into a, a little TV studio, 
Now that's a different experience than being in Orlando with everybody else, but you're in Milwaukee, Grant Hill is somewhere else, Jim Jackson is somewhere else. Give us a sense of what the challenges are like. You know, Brevin and I are in arena to do games and we're side by side, but you don't have uh, that advantage when you, when you are doing games on a national basis. So what, what is it like now doing these games? Well, we're a little over a month into it now, and now so the newness is wearing off. So now the challenge is to try to find some energy and find that adrenaline because, you know, you look around. I'm, I'm in a room here. I'll give you play-by-play play of my room, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a 12 by 9, a 12 by 4 by 9, so 12 feet long, 4 feet wide, 9 feet tall, and there's acoustic treatments everywhere. It's, it sounds good. It feels good. It's a very comfortable space carved out of my basement in Wisconsin in my home. So uh, in front of me, I have monitors that are uh, program, which you see on television. And then I have a monitor up above that, which is a quad box. And in that quad box, I have both ATRs above the rim cameras. So I can kind of pay attention to what's going on images away from what you're seeing on television and then i have uh, my partner in a box so i can make eye contact and we can have some kind of nonverbal communication and then i have a smaller box with program in there as well and then i have a stats monitor i have a zoom call which is exactly where you are now on this particular podcast where my stats guy is and we communicate this way i have him i have him patched into my right ear Normally he'd write notes, but he's actually in my right ear with bits of information, second foul on so-and-so, a 10-0 run, just little quick hitters like that. And so I guess when I try to explain what it's about is normally when we sit at the uh, table and we call a game uh, at an arena or at a, at a baseball stadium or wherever, we aren't responsible for so many things to look at. We look at the field, we look at maybe our notes, and we look at the monitor for television announcers like you and I are. So that's three things. But in this setting, it's basically eight things. So it's, it's the quad box, which is four, program five, the stats monitor six, my Zoom call with my stats guy seven, and my own notes. And so eight things is different than three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <And Yeah. laughs> so when you're used to doing this for over 20 years, like I have been, you're, you have to train your brain and your eyes to remind yourself to go to these different places with your eyes, because you'd be absorbing that if you were at the arena. For example, if, it, if a guy is, uh, steps on the three-point line when he shoots the ball, maybe it's just a toe, you're absorbing that you see the referee put his fingers down, you know, like a long two, two fingers down or raise his arms up as a three pointer uh, or, you know, or raise his arms up one arm that it's going to be a three. So you kind of lose that, that peripheral uh, perception, I guess is the best way to call it. So every game that I've done in this setting, I've either stepped on my partner a couple of times a day, or I've missed something on the floor, whether you hear a whistle, but maybe the camera that you're looking at doesn't have the officials in it. So you don't know if it's out of bounds, if it's a charge, if it's a block, whatever, you really just don't know. And so you have to change the way mechanically that you do this. Whereas you're playing defense a lot more <laughs> from an announcer perspective, you're not just letting it fly. You're absorbing it, trying to let your brain compute and then speaking about things more in the past tense, I guess. Right. I know you understand what that means, but 
for the audience. It's more, you know, a three-pointer goes in by John Moran. It's like, and John Moran now has four three-pointers in this game as opposed to, whoa, John Moran hits another three. Because that reactionary moment, as you watch it at home, it's a second behind. So people who are watching this at home, our greatest fear in life as announcers is to be behind the play. We're behind every play in this setting because it's bouncing from all over the world and country, you know, Atlanta to the venue to me in Wisconsin. So we're just not seeing it. Uh, amazing technology, but it's still about a second of latency. And so you call things more in the past tense and it's not hard. It's just different. And now we're getting used to it. And I say all of that because I'm very grateful not to have to get on an airplane and fly and the, this virus is a nightmare and I'm, I'm very happy to be home and still be able to work. My wife has an autoimmune disease, so I'm very grateful that Turner Sports and Warner Media has gone to the expense to try to pull this off so we can continue to entertain and do our jobs on some level. But all that being said, Pete, we, uh, you can't be great at it. You know, you can't be a great play-by-play guy if you can't, if you're just not there and you're not seeing and absorbing all of that and feeling the crowd and feeling the players and hearing the whistles. And you just can't, you can get by because we have muscle memory, right? Like it's good enough. Games. Yeah. We right. can get by and it'll sound somewhat the same. And to the untrained ear, maybe it sounds exactly the same, but you just can't be great at it. No, I, uh, Shlomo Sprung had interviewed me for an article for awful announcing. And I said, you can put out a good show, it's almost impossible to put out a great show. Yes. Doing it exactly. from distance as we are. You talked and about you it. Can, and you can really butcher a good game if you're not completely on your toes. And I say that because imagine my setting in my basement. Okay. Everybody's gone to bed. It's a West coast game. It's the fourth quarter, LeBron James. And here comes my dog walking in plops down and wants a belly rub. Right? So like home Brian is different than TV Brian. That's a different person. And now I'm looking at this dog who has no clue or care. She wants a belly rub. And I'm trying to call an NBA game in front of two, three million fans. And I've got to like get my blinders back up. So it's those moments. They happen all the time, all the time. <laughs> uh, one last thing, we talked about the entertainment and, and you have crossed over because you were at the Golf Channel for a period of time. You've done sidelines for the San Antonio Spurs, um, doing baseball with the Brewers. The COVID relief match, I remember that back, <laughs> what, in, in there was around Memorial, Memorial Day, Day, I yeah, think it was. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that experience like? Because, I mean, you've got Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and Charles Barkley and Phil Mickelson, who might be four of the more entertaining people yeah. to ever to ever be around. What What is it like to do one of – we know what it's like to do a, quote-unquote, serious – I mean, a, a PGA Tour event. This was the furthest thing from a PGA Tour event. Right. It, was, it was strictly entertainment and charity. What was that experience like? It was incredible on so many layers, and uh, I could go on forever about that experience. First of all, it was the first bubble. So we, we did a test run, which later became the NBA bubble on the broadcasting side. So we were there seeing if we could pull this off, had a nurse on site, you know, temperatures. We were getting tested, wearing masks, the whole bit. And this is Memorial Day. This is late May. So this is the first 
thing that we had ever done on site the week before golf channel had done a, a made for TV event, but they were all in a studio and kind of locked away. We were all on site. Um, so that's one thing. And, and I think the experience we all got from the Turner sports side that we all got there really led to a lot of the elements you saw in the NBA bubble, how we functioned, how the trucks were set up, bringing in extra trucks. So graphics could be separate from video and, and, you know, you, your production staff could be separate from the tech staff. Everybody had space. So that was huge. And that was a really important piece of it. And they spent a lot of money to try to pull this off. From the entertainment perspective, you know, I've called a number of PGA championships and, you know, you only have four players and they're all mic'd up. So the really the key was for, for me and Trevor Immelman and Charles Barkley, who was the three in the booth, and Justin Thomas was our on-course announcer. So you had a fifth mic'd up expert. For me, it was more about getting in and out of commercials, kind of putting quick little subtitles on things that we'd see, engaging with the players in interviews, and so it was more traffic cop than play by play. There were very few moments where you would actually describe something, but it was, you know, mostly in and out of breaks. So the mechanics of it were totally different than any golf tournament I've ever been on. Uh, and we were on the air basically six hours. So there was an endurance challenge uh, to it as well. And then I'll give you the one last story that, that still resonates to this day. So Tom Brady, uh, the morning of the match, it's raining. And if you remember the match, it poured during the event, but it's, it's a steady rain, not a downpour. This is maybe three hours before uh, the, the scheduled tee time. And when we hit the air, Tom Brady's in the parking lot doing the sprint stretch routine where he's sprinting, stretching in an empty parking lot. They didn't allow anybody there. Tom Brady just signed with the, <laughs> with the uh, Buccaneers, Charles Barkley, Asked him, what you doing, man? <laughs> and Brady says, stone-faced, I'm trying to win a Super Bowl. That's May. That's Memorial Day. <laughs> and here he is going to a Super Bowl. So I, I just – I was texting with Charles the other day just laughing about – so you remember – what Brady said to you. And uh, he's like, yeah, man, that's why I'm putting my money on the, <laughs> on the Buccaneers. So I, that's kind of like the, uh, the memory I have of uh, the awesomeness of Tom Brady when everybody else is in shelter and, and Tiger Woods, like you, you're playing with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and Justin Thomas is there. Everybody's in this room, which is the men's grill. They basically made it into a rain room and we're all there. And Tom Brady's out in the rain working out. It's like, man, this dude is different, way yeah. different. So yeah, yeah, almost. Uh, it, it was a great experience. Almost, almost like a Kobe Bryant moment. Uh, yes. Since, since we're up, since we're on the topic, he, one he last thing. Done that. He would have done that. One last thing before before you go, and I have to ask this: having grown up in Wisconsin, and as we record this today is Bob Euchre's birthday. Yes, I it believe. is. Eighty-seven. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to lean on you BA for, for a Bob Euchre story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are probably many, uh, but not all of them uh, that, that you could share. Well, I, I will share this with you because you are a fellow cheeser. One thing about being in the inner circle of Bob Euchre is that you don't share any Bob Euchre stories because <laughs> he made that very clear when I first met him. But I will say there are, there are a number of, you know, I play a lot of golf with Bob Euchre. My favorite memory of, of uh, Euchre, uh, when I first started with the Brewers, 2007, 
uh, I did the whole spring training. I went there for six weeks to get to know the team. I was, you know, I left the Spurs and Golf Channel to go take the Brewers job. And uh, I spent the whole time there. And I really was eager to meet Bob Euchre. And Bob Euchre had, in a small way, he had a little bit to do with me getting the job. His best friend was a guy that I knew well when the job came open through, you know, third party. I asked him if he would ask Bob if he would at least, like, mention my name to the bosses, which he did. And the story is that they pulled my demo materials out of the no file because I hadn't, I hadn't done any major league baseball at that time. Uh, so anyway, I kind of knew Bob through this guy named Murray Burnett and, but he, he iced me the entirety of spring training. He didn't, he, he said hi and bye. He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't share anything with me. He totally, he was an ass to me the whole time. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Well, that didn't go the way I was hoping. Well, I thought Bob Euchre was this great guy, and he was yeah. not to me. He was brutal. So first road trip, we go to Miami. Maybe it was the second road trip. We, we go to Miami, and I've just come from the Golf Channel, right? So my, my handicap is about a, like a two at this point, and I'm, I'm playing really good. I'm shooting mm -hmm. par, or, you know, some, somewhere around there between 70 and 75 every time out. So – Bob Euchre, uh, he, we're walking off the bus into the hotel. And he grabs me by the arm. He always sits in the front left on the bus. He grabs me by the arm. He, and as I was uh, coming on the bus, actually, and he goes, hey, I hear you're a stick. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, if you're a golfer, you know what that means, right? And I go, well, yeah, I, I, I play okay. He goes, hey, let's go play. Let's go, uh, let's go play. Uh, you got a place here? You got a friend? Because I had a buddy that had a course in Miami. So we set it up. We go play. There's nobody on the golf course. It's just us. It's like a weekday weekday. And we go in the early in the morning. Like, I mean, crack of dawn. He wants to get up early. And so we play with the head pro and the club champion. <laughs> and so now we're playing and, you know, they want to get close to Bob and the whole bit. Bob, the first nine holes, he tells me everything I need to know about being the Brewers announcer on television. He, he lays out the whole structure of the organization, the ownership. Here's who's you need to know. Here's the guy you don't need to piss off. Here's the guy that you need to take care of everything. It was amazing. And I'm thinking, finally, I've broken through. So we get to the 10th tee and I, I don't even, I'm not even keeping score at this point. Cause I'm just like totally engaged with Uke. And he goes, Hey, I think we can take these guys. This is the head golf professional. <laughs> And the club champion on their course. And at this time he's 70 years old and I, you know, whatever. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we play him. Bob's like, Hey, we're taking you guys on best ball. And I'm telling you, Pete, I said a prayer at that moment. Like, Lord, I've never prayed to play good golf. Cause <laughs> I don't think that's really a, like, you don't want to waste a prayer like that. And I said, please let me play good right now. We have no chance against these two guys it's their course and we used every one of euchre's t-balls and i played my tail off probably the best nine holes i've ever played in my life i think i had three birdies and we beat them and from <laughs> then on bob euchre was like okay pal we're in and i was in <laughs> all i swear golf has, has has created so many opportunities in my life uh, I love the sport, but that day, I will never forget that day in Miami uh, playing golf with Bob Euchre and him wanting to, like, gamble and challenge these guys. And he made those guys buy us 
lunch. I think they bought us like some memorabilia, some shirts. <laughs> he made them buy everything. He was putting stuff. He was like Rodney Dangerfield in there. I have two of these and two of those and put it on Bob's bill. The other Bob who was the head pro. So what a great memory. Uh, and there are thousands of stories very similar that I could uh, spend hours talking about, but he's a, he's a gift to humanity. That guy. Yeah, he's he's an absolute treasure. Brian, thank you so much for the time. And when when all this is over, open invitation, TPC Southwind. Oh, uh, you, me, Brevin, we'll uh, we'll go swing it. And Bob Euchre, and we'll take oh, you guys on. Okay, you 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 you, you bring Euchre along. That that'd be fine. Thank yes. you. So, thanks so yes, much for sir. the time, Brian. All right, Pete, you're the best man. Appreciate you and everything you do in all walks of your life, man. You're you're one of the great ones. Really and truly, I did not tell Brian Anderson to say that. He is very, very kind. We are, we are personal friends, and we share uh, we share notes from time to time on broadcasting and uh, getting ready for our various games, particularly if we're calling the same game, he on national TV and me for uh, Fox Sports Southeast. So really appreciate his time. That does it for this edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind. Hope that you enjoyed it. And a reminder that today's episode was brought to you by Garner Framing. If there was one thing you could do, one bold action you could take, one inspired choice you could make, one investment, and guaranteed to transform Memphis. Would you do it? If that answer is yes, here's your chance. The Grizzlies Foundation is looking for Memphians to be the difference in a child's life by becoming a volunteer mentor. There are 800 youth in Memphis waiting for your decision today, so don't delay. Join the movement. Be a mentor at grizzliesfoundation.org. This message brought to you through the generous support of Garner Framing Company, serving Memphis for 70 years and a proud supporter of the Memphis Grizzlies Foundation. Framing consultations being done now by appointment at 901-685-7796. Our thanks to Brian Anderson and to you for listening. Coming up in future editions, a conversation with Monty McCutcheon from the NBA Officiating Office on the challenges of referee operations in the pandemic. This has been the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network.